Hello, everyone, and welcome to Autism Stories, where we connect you with amazing people who are helping autistic adults and teens become more successful. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. This episode of Autism Stories will be unlike any other, as I will be like all of you listening, not interviewing, and I'll be back in the interviewer's seat next week. This week, Haley Moss will be interviewing Dr. Lamar Hardwick. Haley will talk with Lamar about his keynote on diversity in neurodiversity at the upcoming Milestones National Autism Conference, along with discussing fatherhood, marriage, and much more. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about autism stories. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lamar. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. So this year, Milestones is going virtual and I wanted to know how you feel about that. How Are you excited to play with the virtual format and hopefully see how that works. Have you done anything virtual yet? Um, I have done a few things. I'm not sure that I've ever done anything virtual for this size. Uh, so that's interesting and a little bit of uh, anxiety there. But, you know, I, I think they have a good system how they want to do it. And so um, we'll see how it goes. I think it's really exciting. So I actually did a virtual conference about a week ago and I really enjoyed the experience because people who might not have been able to come in person were finally able to get access to the things that we like to talk about when we are at these events in person. And I know that Milestones in particular, when I went last year, we had people from all over the country who were coming to Cleveland to learn as much as possible. So I think people will definitely be able to get a lot from you no matter where they are. That's the cool thing about it is it's probably the impact will probably be larger. And so that's exciting to know that more people will have access to the content that comes out of the conference. So what is the impact that you're really hoping to make with your keynote this year? My keynote is I'm just talking about uh, the future of autism advocacy, just in really focusing on um, diversity. I'm, I'm telling my story of being diagnosed as an adult and I get a lot of questions about you know how that's possible and there's some pretty generic reasons why it's possible for most people but one of the things that I'm hoping to highlight is some of the gaps in in diagnosing African-American children and other um, children of color mm -hmm. and why there's a gap there and uh, a lot of ways that even in my story as I've reflected with my therapist and my family to see where some of those things were missed along the way. Fortunately for mm -hmm. me, I did okay. Um, but there are some things that I think would help sort of close that diagnostic gap. And I'm hoping that uh, people will see that, but then also understand that the larger reason why this is important is because the more diversity we have within our neurodiverse community, the, the better it is for us being able to advocate for what we need. Absolutely. And I did notice that that racial gap that you mentioned as well has been closing a little bit. I noticed it with the mm -hmm. new CDC numbers, which I think is a great thing seeing, 
in children, but you mentioned a really good thing about adults in there. And something I talked about in one of my breakout sessions last year was closing that disparity and gap for women. And we Mm -hmm. talked a lot about masking and why girls and women are often undiagnosed. So I think it's really interesting to see that you're taking a different perspective on that with adults and also people of color. So is there something in particular that you think might speak to why we don't see diagnoses earlier? I think, and it's, this is probably true of, although I haven't done this quite as much research for women, but I think it's probably true as well, is that um, a lot of the initial criteria was developed by researching non-minority males. Mm-hmm. So most of the That sounds the criteria, a lot like what happens with women, is that a lot of the, yeah. feature, a lot of the research does feature a lot of young white boys more than anybody else. Right. And so some of the characteristics, some of the things to look for, you know, there's obviously gender gaps there because no one was researching using, you know, young girls to develop the criteria and also, mm-hmm. you know, young African-American or other um, children of color. And so I think you, you just, you run the risk of sort of creating this template that doesn't necessarily fit other demographics, whether it's gender or race, you tend to see larger gaps and being able to diagnose them because you're looking for one set of behaviors that either um, gender-wise or Mm cultural-wise may not be exhibited. And so, and I did see that uh, recent research, and so that made me happy. Me too. Uh, I I think we have a ways to go, but it looks Mm -hmm. like it's going in the right direction. I think that cultural aspect is really interesting too, because I realize that with women, especially neurodiverse women in general, so autistic and ADHD especially, is that we don't hit on a lot of those stereotypes that we think of that autistic women might be quieter, for instance, or we think of with ADHD, we might think of really disruptive, bouncing Mm -hmm. off the walls, Mm -hmm. little boys, but instead our inattentiveness might be a lot more quiet or less obvious. So it is really interesting to think of it from a cultural perspective and even socially, the way that girls are expected to be people pleasers and very nurturing and all mm-hmm. that stuff that it's, there's that blending into that. And that's not what we're told based on how autism people think of that lack of empathy and all that while we're modeling that empathy that to an extreme almost to try to blend in. Yeah, exactly. And that, you know, so a lot of what uh, I'm talking about is just using bits and pieces of my story to highlight some of those uh, same issues from a cultural perspective and even just uh, explore what are some of the default uh, assumptions about children of color that mm-hmm. causes for misdiagnosis or not being properly um, diagnosed with maybe even other things that mm-hmm. um, may be helpful and help give them the support that they need. Because, you know, just, and you know this with, uh, as a woman, there are some default assumptions about how a young girl should behave. And so they behave in a certain way that sort of veers outside of that, you know, really clear at some people's mind boundary of how they should behave then you have a whole other set of assumptions about why that is and it never crosses your mind that this may be uh, something that needs to be further investigated that may lead to autism diagnosis. I think that's really, really interesting. And something you mentioned earlier in this discussion about your keynote and also 
activism and advocacy and neurodiversity is you mentioned about the future. So I know right now that the current times and situation are definitely kind of scary and interesting, but you were talking about what you think that that future of neurodiversity looks like. And I'm curious what you think the movement's going to continue to look like going forward. Well, I think now that we're getting um, better data on closing the gap, I think we'll start to see um, the gaps of services close, uh, the gaps of early intervention, the gaps for support for uh, adults uh, and, and transitioning into adulthood. I think that's going to change. But I think overall, uh, if I could give like a wide lens, when you talk about uh, the disability community as a whole, whether it's intellectual, uh, physical, or developmental, I believe that the autism community because it's for a large part deeply rooted in diversity, many neurodiversity, I think we have a potential to really lift the entire disability community if we get a better handle on what is really the core of the reason um, why many of us are diagnosed is that you know we have a diverse way of thinking and living. Mm-hmm. And so if we sort of make that our bedrock and we strengthen within our own community, the diversity of the voices that are championing our cause, the diversity of, um, you know, ethnicity, gender, we start to see more and new and different faces. Uh, I think it does a lot to lift the entire disability community as we seek as a whole to be better included in society. So I, I think we can be the ones who lead the charge in the future. Uh, for diversity and inclusion. I think that's really amazing and being able to tie it to the greater disability community as well because I even think about who I admire in the greater disability community and a lot of the people that are the leaders do happen to be people of color and also people that are a gender minority as well so it's really really interesting to see that and I also just anyone who's listening I pulled up some of the data that we mentioned with the prevalence increases so the new numbers for autism are one in 54 children. And for the first time, prevalence rates are the same amongst black and white children. And people receiving diagnostic screening by age three has also gone up tremendously. So that's kind of where we're at in this. So just wanted to throw that out there for anyone who wants to know what's going on. So again, I think we're making a lot of progress there too. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that. Switching gears just a little bit, you mentioned being diagnosed as an adult and if I remember correctly you are going to be talking as well about love and marriage. I am in my mid-20s so I'm not quite at the marriage stage yet and I'm really curious about how is that? Are you in a, are you married to a neurotypical or how is that relationship? You know my wife is neurotypical. We've been married actually this coming January next year 20 years uh, we were married before I was diagnosed, but I, I think uh, along the way, we learned a lot of things that have been helpful. One, one of which is, uh, so we met in college. My wife is from Malawi in Africa. And so uh, from the onset, we sort of appreciated our differences, but we thought it was purely cultural. So it helped us to work hard at understanding each other's uh, differences and, you know, making accommodations to one another because we just assumed that we grew up on different continents. Well, 
you know, naturally we're going to see things differently. We're going to communicate differently. Um, she's quite the extrovert, whereas I'm not. And so even before me being diagnosed, that was sort of an advantage. And so after you know, I was diagnosed almost six years ago, I was 36. So after that, learning more about myself, even though I've always known I've had challenges with communicating with people, didn't understand what it was or what to call it. But after getting that knowledge, it sort of helped to even strengthen our relationship. And so a lot of what I'm going to be sharing is just personal insight, things that I learned from the therapist that diagnosed me, who I saw for two years, just uh, tips and tools, you know, things like obviously with a relationship, whether it's platonic or romantic, you know, how do you, how do you initiate? What are some of our social cues? I know that's a big thing for neurotypicals, but absolutely. that doesn't mean that we don't have them. It's just not something that, that you come across. And so my wife has learned those. She knows my cues. We know how to do and work together. And so I'll just be sharing some of those things that we have found helpful because we had to work together because we we're different culturally, but then also getting the knowledge of, you know, how my brain works and sharing mm-hmm. that with her and the successes and some, maybe even some of the uh, hiccups that we've had that I think would be helpful for people to know. I think that's really cool. And I really like that you mentioned that cultural understanding as well, because I always, I find myself saying, especially because I had to attend a legal education seminar on cultural competence not too long ago is they talked about it in terms of where people are from. So for instance, if we're negotiating with clients who are in Asia that we, and there might be a different style of communication that we're not used to, or that they might be interpreting our enthusiasm differently, for instance. And I think, and something that I mentioned when, to the presenters after, as you know, it's not much different for neurodivergent people is that our communication style is different too. So I think cultural competence and cultural communication is something that really does transcend more than just where you're from. And I realized that, um, you know, as I've traveled and taught people and even people that have worked uh, for me, um, I realized that it is just as instinctual for them to be the way that they are, that it is for me to be the way that I am. So there's a lot of learning that needs to take place. And one of the things I have often shared and taught about relationships is, you know, anytime the burden is on one person Mm -hmm. to do all of the adjustments, you're always going to have problems. Even beyond just being neurodiverse, it is just knowing that if, if you know that there are certain things about me that may not be as instinctual to you as it is to me, mm-hmm. uh, at least be willing to partner with me in making some adjustments in the way that I've had to make adjustments my entire life. And that mm-hmm. makes for a good foundation of being able to successfully have relationships. So the whole, I say that to say the whole talk is not purely, here's how you can get neurotypical people to like you. It's also challenging <laughs> people to say, hey, if I you're willing to make some of that. I think it really yeah. is about communication because I think about the relationships that I've had, even with friends and romantically as well, is a lot of 
relationships I did have were both neurodiverse and neurotyp with neurotypical people. So I've seen it on both ends. And something that you mentioned mm -hmm. is that it does require both sides. That it's not one person making all the adjustments or doing everything wrong or doing everything right. right. So I think that's something right. as a younger person in relationships, you think that you're this perfect friend and perfect partner, but it turns out that you make mistakes too. And it's kind of figuring out how to identify that and own up to it. And right. I think that's really interesting that you bring that up because I think that applies no matter who is in a relationship and what kind of relationship that you have is that it really does transcend this just here's how to get neurotypical people to like you because it's not just about getting people to like you. I think it's so much deeper than that. And I'm not married, so I don't know what it's like, but I think that it, I get to see my parents who've been married for 27 years and mm -hmm. I see their relationship and it really is that they constantly communicate with each other and they are truly partners. So that's something that I've learned about relationships is that it's a partnership, but what advice do you think when it comes to relationships that you have for autistic people that want this because so often I think people think we don't want relationships or we aren't interested but we very much are yeah I, I think this is probably going to sound cliche but I found it to be true is to really work on a good sense of self and self-confidence and knowing that like you're okay you're okay the way that you were made and and how your brain is wired and to develop a sense of confidence in that so that as you're entering into whatever type of relationship, you don't feel this overwhelming pressure to conform or to make too many adjustments that end up harming you more than it helps you. And I think, you know, that's true of a lot of relations. I think it's true even more so for people, you know, on the spectrum, people are more diverse because we live in a world, I say this often, we live in a world that our brains are not built for. I say uh, that too. And yeah. And so Social it's model very disability easy. Stuff. Exactly. So it's very easy to slip into this mode. I, you know, I tell people all the time, uh, all the definitions of what it means to be a people, quote unquote, people person were defined by all this, by people who all think the same way. You know, it, it's going to take for us to really have a sense of self-confidence and self-worth and say, no, the entire world doesn't think like that. The entire world doesn't see the world like that. And it's okay. And I think going into a relationship, if you're okay with that, you increase the probability of being successful and there'll be some bumps. I don't want anybody to ever think like, Oh, um, it's definitely not it's sunshine and roses, no matter what. Like, yeah, it's at least not, not a all magic the time. formula. Yeah. It's not a magic formula, but at least like, you know, I can say you can always come back to mm -hmm. being good with yourself and people tend to follow suit when they know that, you know, you're good mm -hmm. with yourself and they become better at being good with who you are as well. I think that's really interesting is it kind of does start with that relationship you have with your own self-esteem and self-worth and self-love before you're able to have the confidence to reject it and go out into the world. So I really appreciate that, especially because I know with everything going on and all sorts of things that people are not feeling confident and all that. So I think that's really important to remember as it starts within before it goes outwards into the world with other people. On the topic of relationships, I also recall hearing that you are a father and I have no kids. I don't have pets of my own. I, I have my parents, 
my childhood pets with and pets with my parents, but I don't have any pets of my own and I don't have any plants or anything that are living. So for me hearing about autistic people who do have their own families, for me, it's absolutely fascinating because it might be something that I would like someday. I'm not a hundred percent sure yet because I haven't met the right person and I'm still trying to move through parts of my own career and goals as well. But mm. I would love to know about what is it like to be a father? That's sort of an ever-changing experience. <laughs> <laughs> my wife and I, we have three kids, all boys. <laughs> the oldest uh, will be 15 next month. Mm-hmm. Our middle is 11. And our youngest will be six or seven in two weeks. And so, you know, it's it's a constant sense of adjustment. And so... You know, I like my routines. I like structure. I like, and I'll just say when you have kids, it teaches you to be more graceful and more flexible Mm -hmm. because, you know, it's ever changing, ever morphing, you know, from year to year, from season to season, Mm -hmm. it it can be different things, but it's definitely something that uh, is exciting for me. It's just looking, you know, looking at it, uh, a child that's like, well, you can see, like, I think each one of my, none of my kids have been diagnosed on the spectrum, mm-hmm. but in each one of them, I see a different part of my personality, like just one part. It's mm-hmm. like, if you put them all together, they all be me, but they each have gotten <laughs> something from me that may have may gotten them diagnosed, but you no, know, it's not enough of it's just not enough alone. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I think we do get traits from our parents like while, and I think it also is sort of like learning language. So even if you aren't speaking the, the predominant language of a society at home, for instance, you're still bilingual. So I think when people have a neurodiverse parent and a neurotypical parent that they do end up picking up on the mannerisms of both and are kind of able to communicate both in neurodivergent and in neurotypical fairly fluently. It might not be enough in itself, but it's definitely that kind of understanding. I'm not sure if you found that to be true, but that's always kind of how I imagined it in a way. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely, I, I've never put it in those terms, but the way you put it is brilliant because that's <laughs> definitely what I see. And But I also think it's created in them like this sense of like, they know about, you know, about my diagnosis. They've mm-hmm. seen, you know, my books have come to, places that I've presented at and um what I, I hope they're joining us for milestones. Well, I don't know <laughs> that they could sit in front of a <laughs> computer that long. Um, hey, at least it'll be recorded as well and then we can pause it. Because I know for me when I watch things online sometimes I need to press pause or I need to just stop and think for a minute. So that's always a nice thing too. Oh yeah. But so them knowing about me, I think though it's made them more accepting like one of our youngest our our youngest child Mm -hmm. teacher had said that she knows that he's very compassionate with um other children in the class that Mm -hmm. you know don't socialize as much or somehow you know there's always that one or two kids that the other kids don't really play with and he's always very attentive to that and so I think they've just sort of learned that and picked that up, which has been, you know, a huge benefit and a joy to watch them at least grow up being compassionate and considerate and accommodating to people who uh, have differences in them. I think that's the most you can ask for, because I remember thinking about this before as well. And I think that if you can, if you have 
kind kids, I think that's really the best that you can ask for because everyone I think might have a goal for their kid or they want them to be an astronaut or something or they'd hope or their hopes and their dreams. But I think most importantly is that we do have kindness and compassion. Like it's more important than anything else. And it sounds like you and your wife are doing an incredible job. Yeah. I don't give her a lot of credit to just <laughs> Like I said, she's definitely the extrovert. I'm not, but they have, you know, we, we work together and the things that you know, sort of wear me out that they do with her. And then I show up when I'm ready. And, you know, so everybody's mm-hmm. like, okay, we know how to still be able to enjoy, you know, mm-hmm. everything that childhood has to offer. And it's just made them mm-hmm. more aware and more compassionate. So like you said, it's, it's what you can hope for, especially in this world today that you just have kids that are just kind uh, mm-hmm. and empathetic and just good human beings. And something that you mentioned as well is that you're an introvert. So I'm also pretty introverted, even though I know that we we have these conversations and we will talk to an audience, for instance. So as an introvert, what's the thing that makes you feel relaxed or kind of recharges your social batteries? What kind of makes you have that feeling of peace and calm? Well, a couple of things. I, I'm an avid reader, so I love to read. I usually read anywhere from three to five books a month, just I just love to read. I've always been like that as a kid. My mom Me too. would have to come in my room and get books off my face because I'd fall asleep reading at night. So that exercise, you know, right? Some some things where I could just put on my earbuds and just zone out. I'm also a big movie person. I love movies. So anytime. But I like like documentaries. I know this is like super nerdy. Hey, no shame. The last movie I did watch was a documentary. So of documentaries because they're just very much great storytelling, even though the funny thing is I realize how much they have in common with reality TV sometimes is just with that format. But I think the cool thing about documentaries is they really humanize and try to tell stories about someone. So the last I watched Becoming last night about the former first lady, and it was just so interesting to see that glimpse into this person's life and who they are right yeah right my wife was actually watching that last night too um (laughs) i fell asleep but i plan on finishing it it's on my list but yeah i love reading documentary films and like you said i love stories i'm a behind this i'm I'm the type of person that likes to know how things are made whether it's Mm -hmm. a person's life or a gadget that i like Mm -hmm. you know i recently got into photography you know we're not allowed to go out a lot but and I've always enjoyed you know storytelling through pictures so I've mm-hmm. bought myself some cameras and I found myself just endless YouTube videos learning that so I'm just whatever I can find out about something that I'm interested in whether it's a, doc, mm-hmm. a person a documentary an item those you kind of want to know everything about it yeah everything yeah but but it you know, for some people to wear them out, but like it really helps me to chill out and mm-hmm. um, just kind of get in my, you know, quote unquote, happy place. So <laughs> those are just some of the things. I feel like our happy places are very similar because I feel like I do a lot of reading. I, I like movies because I don't feel like I have the attention span for a full television show half the time, like for seasons and seasons and seasons of something. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I also love getting outside or trying to get to work out is a way of relaxing too. And I really do wish I was a photographer. So I am a little bit envious. I'm, I like to draw, I like to draw and paint. So that's kind of my artistic expression there, but 
my dad's been picking up the camera. At least he's, he started picking it up a little bit more last summer and it was really cool seeing him play around with it and experiment. And there are a lot of nature shots above all else, but I just think it's really cool seeing how other people see the world. So what do you think is the most important thing that people can learn from you or that you want them to take away that we feel like we've heard you. We know that you're incredibly accomplished, that you've written books and that you're a faith leader, that you do all these wonderful things. You're a father, you're a husband. What do you think is the most important thing that I should walk away and feel like that's the thing that I'm glad that I learned from Dr. Lamar Hardwick about? If I had to boil it down, like I often <laughs> tell people that. It's um, storytelling. So that's why I'm kind of thinking like, what's the story that you want us to walk away with? Yeah. I think, I think story, that's the cool thing about being a speaker is you're in charge of your own story and how you tell your story. So I kind of am curious, right. like, what's this, what's the takeaway or what's the story you really want us to remember well after you speak and well after this conference ends? Yeah. And I think it's my story is that I would hope to encourage people to make space and room for a variety of stories I just think that that that's the thing, you know, I did a conference last year and I, my keynote was about mapping the journey and I did it in a form of, you know, just helping people understand how to, how to tell their story. Mm-hmm. Um, but also for us to make space and room uh, for other people's stories and, and use it as a map for the places that we want to go in life. The earliest maps were designed to tell stories. They weren't just about destinations. They were designed to, so cartographer, cartography started off as an idea of telling a story about a journey to a destination. And I think we've lost that. We're so concerned about arriving. We want people to be a certain way and mm-hmm. to think a certain way. And so what I would love people to take away is that, you know, not just my story, but to appreciate and to make space for variety mm-hmm. and a diversity of stories mm-hmm. so that we, you know, we as humanity can be much more mindful of how to appreciate the journey that everyone is taking instead of just assuming that they need to arrive somewhere that we have pre-scribed uh, for them Absolutely. to arrive. And I think that beauty in the journey and not just about the destination is something that I talked about last year. So I always tell people, and I Mm -hmm. remember telling people in my keynote last year, if all you got out of this story is that once I was diagnosed with autism and was nonverbal, and now I'm a lawyer, then you missed the whole journey. You missed what was really in the middle of that, that there was no magic, quick yellow brick road from A to B. So I think that's really interesting Mm -hmm. about making space for the journey. Because the journey really is the stuff that's interesting. It really isn't that exciting when you boil it down to once upon a time this and here's your happily ever after is that there's all sorts of stuff. And I think about that like with the Wizard of Oz, like if all we did was tell a story of once Dorothy's house got swept up and now she found the Emerald City, it completely destroys the story and the fact that she meets all these friends on the road and she has all these obstacles and the witch and this and that, like there's so much more to our stories than just the beginning and the end is that the middle is really where everything happens and to make space for that. I really like that message a lot. And I think that's incredibly powerful. Yeah. And I think it helps because, you know, one of the things that I have observed in the autism community, and this is maybe, you know, from, you know, diagnosing a child early is, is that, it tends to be so destination focused. I even talk about that in a, a talk I gave about 
milestones are great. And I'm not talking about milestones of conference, but just milestones. <laughs> I mean, the conference is pretty great. Not going to lie. Yeah. I'm very excited to get yeah. to go this year on as an attendee. So kind of being on the other side, because you know how it is when you are speaking at a conference, most of the milestones are real, so to speak, are right. you, you getting there, you going through your talk, you interacting with people and not really just getting to soak up information and enjoy every second of it. Exactly. So I'm very yeah. excited that this time yeah. I get to do it. I've shared this and this is maybe another part of what I want people to learn is milestones can be great. And I shared this maybe two years ago when I turned 40, I said, you know, I was always like, Oh, when I get 40 and I, and it's like, I got to 40 and it was like, oh, I don't know that it feels any different. It's just <laughs> like, it's supposed to be a milestone, but it was like, uh, whatever. It's just, but I think it's, they're great, but sometimes it can be misleading because they're, it always makes us have a desire to be there out there somewhere. And we miss the beauty of here and so exactly. that's sort of the message is and, people, and I see it a lot in the autism community is you know so you got to reach this milestone you got to do this you got to be this I want my child and and you have to be there I'm at a, a certain parent, time so I get it. and it's yeah, expected and I, that you're there I'm at a certain a time like I still tell people like yeah I didn't know how to tie my shoes until I was like 12 and this whole thing about hitting ages I think that in those milestones I thought was really interesting like when you bring up turning 40 a lot of I'm 25 and people love to ask Mm -hmm. me what my five-year plan is and where I think I'm going to be by the time I'm 30 and I'm sitting there like I don't know that's kind of a lot of pressure know that yeah it's a lot of pressure so most of the time not knowing what to say I say I wish that I was I'll be a couple inches taller because it's never going to happen and it seems like a nice goal (laughs) like I I know that I stopped growing I don't think I'm, I'm five three I don't think I'm gonna get much taller at this point but it sounds like a good goal even though it's definitely not realistic (laughs) and it kind of signals that I don't feel comfortable with this because it seems so arbitrary and you're putting so much stock in it and if I don't hit that by the time I'm 30 then maybe I'm gonna feel bad or I'm gonna feel guilty when really life just has other plans or maybe that wasn't where I was meant to be I had predicted this is the conversation we'd be having if you told me 10 years ago yeah. when I was in high school that I'd one day go to law school and be a lawyer, I would have laughed at you because I thought I was going to be a doctor or I thought I was going to be a journalist or I thought I'd be doing something else completely different or I thought I was going to be a professional artist. So right. I didn't know what I was going to be doing. And I, and is it, all, is it okay to just enjoy, you know, the collection of events and moments Mm -hmm. and use that as a way to sort of be the guide versus absolutely oh i'm gonna in 10 years this is where i want to and so yeah i totally agree with you it's just i think the milestones are really the memories and the and the day by day things like sometimes the most beautiful days are the most unexpected you know i'm sure we'll look back even over this time period in history and while it's terrible Mm -hmm. you know something about this we would have learned something about ourselves that would help us to grow and evolve absolutely I was talking I was talking to a friend earlier today and I said like as scary as this is it makes me hopeful and I think that's the thing that we learned is how creative we could be and even with this conference it shows how creative we are and that we're willing to be innovative and try a new format and make sure that people are having access to something that they wanted even beforehand but now it's even more accessible on this larger reach that we talked about so I think there will always be something to remember or at the very least we get an interesting story of remember that time that I gave this presentation at a conference over the internet. So I think you are incredible and have so much to share. And I really like that you want to hold space and make sure that neurodiversity is super diverse and that you have 
learned so much as a parent and a husband. I love all that you're saying. So I'm sure that whoever else is listening to us is probably going to feel the same way and have that same respect and appreciation that I do. And whether or not they are going to the conference, how can people follow you or get in touch with you or learn more about you because you are genuinely awesome? Well, thanks. Um, I think probably the best way is I have a website um, and it's autismpastor.com. For those who are listening who may or may not know that I'm also a pastor. And so uh, if you go to autismpastor.com, you can pretty much find anything that you would want to know about me. There's links to my books. My blog is on there. Um, links to all my social media. So if you're on Instagram, it's just Lamar Hardwick, one word, all lowercase. If you're on Twitter, it's at Autism Pastor. Facebook, um, I have a page, Autism Pastor, as well as my personal page, Lamar Hardwick. So you can find me there or just go to the website and it'll direct you to uh, all of my social and all of my blogs and anything else that you would want to know about how to get in touch with me. That is awesome. And I know I'm really looking forward to seeing you and I think everyone else is too. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. And I really appreciate this kind of almost like symbolic passing of the keynote from autistic to autistic. Cause I know every year milestones make support a point to get somebody on the spectrum to keynote it. So it's really cool to get to see who's next and get to listen and learn from you too. So thank you so much for this. And thank you to Doug for letting me take over his podcast, at least for a day. Thank you to everyone for listening. And thank you so much to Haley and Lamar for the fantastic conversation. I loved what Lamar said about making space for a variety of stories as it can be a map to guide them in life. We really need to continue to hear more and different types of autism stories because stories allow people to identify a piece of themselves which can instill a sense of belief that they may not otherwise have and give them the confidence to grow. My hope is that the Autism Stories podcast is helpful exactly in that manner in which Lamar described. If you look in the podcast description for today's episode, there are links to learn more about Haley, Lamar, and how to learn more about and register for the wonderful Milestones National Autism Conference. Modern life is challenging for anyone right about now. However, when you're autistic, the world isn't designed with your unique traits in mind and everyday demands can feel insurmountable. At Autism Personal Coach, we celebrate neurodiversity by empowering adults and teens to be the best version of their authentic selves. The people we serve are the real experts. We're here to help make your goals a reality. On next week's episode of Autism Stories, we will talk with Christopher Jones about developing community through special interest. Talk to you then.